بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam so I want to welcome all of you new students and old students to the Quran class uh, we're going to jump right into the, the material and let me see if I can set up the whiteboard All right, so hopefully y'all can see the, the, my note screen. Someone nod? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so jumping into the material, the first point I want all of us to consider in terms of the process of learning the Dean is that there's a big difference between what we would call informative knowledge versus transformative knowledge, or informative learning versus transformative learning. Now, what does this mean? Informative is what you would imagine it to be. Transformative is what you'd imagine it to be. But in practice, what does this mean? Informative knowledge means that I read, I attend a lecture, and I'm taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in knowledge. But fundamentally, I may not realize that there's no practice taking place. Transformative knowledge is focused on taking a small, tiny bit of knowledge and then digesting it and implementing it, and then that will result steadily in change in my thinking, in change in my behavior. And so informative knowledge is more focused on quantity, and it's what we would essentially call consumption. You're basically just eating all this information. Transformative knowledge is focused more on the process of change. So it's not looking at what you're taking in, it's looking at what you're aspiring to do. And so with informative knowledge, let me just take every single lecture I can on Al-Fatiha, on Al-Baqarah, on the entire Quran. And then in theory, I've gotten enlightened. But if I'm not practicing anything, then a consequence of informative knowledge is that I become an inflated version of myself. Which means what? It means all my weaknesses become bigger, all my strengths become bigger. So, Whereas transformative knowledge is, is essentially become a reformed version of yourself. And we have two metaphors in the Quran on this issue. One is the donkey carrying books. And the other is the thoroughbred racehorse, the adiyat. I mean, back then it was actually the war horse. In our world, it's become the racehorse. And so what is the difference in behavior between these two things? The donkey will go whatever direction it wants to go. So if you're, if you're running a donkey cart and the donkey starts turning left, you're trying to get it to, to go in the other direction. If it starts going the other direction, you start pulling it. But it goes essentially wherever it wants to go. And it stops whenever it wants to stop. And if I'm just taking in knowledge by listening to lectures, that is what I am becoming. Okay. Nevertheless, knowledge is not valueless. It will still affect me. And the way Islamic knowledge will affect me is that I'll become just a bigger version of myself. So if I'm stubborn, I'm going to become more stubborn. If I have anger issues, I'm going to have more anger issues. 
If I'm generous, I'm also going to become more generous. I'm going to become a bigger version of myself. But fundamentally, I'm going to be driven by my nafs, my baser appetite. Yeah. And these things we'll talk about more as we get to them. Whereas transformative knowledge, which is focused not on what am I learning as much as it's focused on what I'm trying to change to become, then I become like this thoroughbred war horse, this thoroughbred racehorse. And what is this metaphor? This horse, just like you'll see in a race, uh, if the jockey is telling the horse to go faster and faster and faster, it'll keep trying to go faster. And if the jockey immediately says stop, the horse is going to stop. And so when you read Surat Al-Adiyat, <clears throat> the lesson there is, that's being given is that our aspiration is to be exactly what Allah Ta'ala is telling me to be. Which means if Allah Ta'ala is telling me to run, I run. If Allah Ta'ala is telling me to stop, I stop. Right on command. And, and in a nutshell, what does that then mean? What is our goal in terms of, of, of Islamic knowledge? What is the actual goal? The goal of the acquisition of knowledge is essentially to perfect our service to Allah. So Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, I did not create humans in jinn except to worship me, except to serve me. And so that is the fundamental goal. And then a test becomes, if you take a course, what about you has changed by the time you completed the course? Are you fundamentally the same person? You know, if you've attended a lecture and you feel like you've gotten this big iman rush, right? That's the word we like to use. If it hasn't resulted in a change of action, then the exhilaration you've gotten is probably just uh, an excitement in terms of emotion. So even if the change of action is small and temporary, you know, that maybe you've prayed an extra, uh, an extra namaz, an extra salah, or maybe you've said subhanAllah extra times, even if it's some benefit like that, then it's still benefits, right? And then what we have so much repetition in our tradition, that is just like the way this vaccination operates, that you need a booster periodically to get you excited again, to get you motivated again, to get you working again, so forth and so on. So the point here then becomes, <clears throat> as you're taking this class, you want to try to focus on your own personal transformation. So we said the goal of, of how does transformative knowledge operates. It operates according to a goal where you're seeking to change. And what is our goal? We're seeking to perfect our service to Allah, which also has built into it, we seek to improve our service to Allah. And so this is also related to what we call the mother of hadith. And it's a point I'll be referencing throughout the course. Is that there's this hadith of moving from Islam to Iman to Ihsan. And to understand what this means simply, the Islam of most people is more or less the same. And it's more or less the same as the Christianity of most people. It's more or less the same as the Hinduism, the Buddhism, the Judaism of most people. And what I mean by this is that imagine you have a street, one house, you have a Muslim family, another house, you have a Christian family, another house, you have a Jewish family, another house, you have a Hindu family, another house, you have a Buddhist family. 
their personal religious practices are all going to be completely different. Their holiday is going to be completely different. A lot of things on their mind will be completely different. Their rituals will be completely different. But how they look at life is going to be more or less the same thing. And a simple illustration of that is if I look at my Hindu families on campus and if I look at my Muslim families on campus, they have two completely different religions. And what's the most common career choice? Yeah, you know what that's going to be. All right. So the point here is that at the Islam level, you are practicing Islam from the outside in. Okay. And what does that mean? It means you're practicing what you're practicing because something outside of you is telling you to do this. So it could be that the book is telling you that you have to pray, you have to do X, Y, Z. It could be that the culture is telling you this is how you're supposed to talk. This is what you're supposed to do. It could be your fear of heaven or hell or your fear of hell, hope for heaven. The fear and hope is inside of you, but heaven or hell is outside of you. Uh, But this is for most of us, something coming from the outside in, okay? When you get deeper and you reach the point of Iman, and we'll be defining these things again repeatedly, and so if it doesn't quite make sense, feel free to ask questions, but uh, I'll keep redefining these in many ways. When you reach the point of Iman, now it's coming from inside of you, where you pray because you can't not pray. You fast because you can't not fast. You give in charity because you can't not do it. It's coming from inside. Like the word iman, which we commonly translate as faith, is actually, what does it mean? It means to have such a level of security that people feel secure just by being in your company. That you have such a level of security that it's radiating from you out to other people. And other people are feeling secure just by being with you. This is iman. And so in terms of your relationship with Allah, it means that it's coming from within and you can't not serve Allah. And then when we move to Ihsan, Ihsan is perfection of faith. And so now here, everything that you're doing is focused on Allah. The Hadith of Jibreel says you're worshiping Allah as though you see him. And so the goal is to reach this point. You are not going to reach this point just by taking this class for myself. But the point is, the goal is transformation to get better and better, to reach the point of perfection of faith. And this also translates as beautification of faith, making your iman beautiful. And as it becomes relevant over the course, this will be more in the latter part of the course, even when we speak of sharia, one level of sharia is only to do all the fard, get rid of all the haram. And a deeper level is to do whatever it takes to support those things. And then a deeper level is to beautify everything. Yeah. And so, so the point is that the experience of your practice perfecting your Islam should translate as increased focus on Allah, but also increased beautification of how you live your life, how you speak your life, all of these things. But again, the key point to take from this first part is that the goal is transformative knowledge, where we just cover a small amount of of material and digest it, reflect upon it, and then little by little, that leads to change. As opposed to consuming as many YouTube lectures as I can, making sure I get everything, waste of time completely. You might as well watch a bunch of fitness videos and not practice any fitness. It's exactly the same thing. 
I'm saying this as a person who's given literally, no exaggeration, about 10,000 lectures since 9-11. Okay. So having said that, getting into the text of, of the Quran itself, the goal for our classes in general is going to be 30 to 60 minutes, uh, uh, leaning more towards 30, but this uh, first few classes are going to go closer to, to, to 60, just to make sure we get all the foundational material done. Okay. So again, some basic vocabulary. Obviously, you all know the word Quran. Uh, you probably know one of the meanings of the word. You may or may not know the second. Okay, it's the greatest recitation or the greatest gathering. Okay, small basic information. The greatest recitation, the greatest gathering. And so Quran has, you know, has uh, Qurra, like the word uh, for Makkah is Qurra, Umm al-Qurra. It's a gathering, it's a town. So the greatest gathering. And then just like the word Iqra, Qiraat, Quran also has that as its root, the greatest recitation. This you may already know, and it's probably no surprise, but the point I want you to digest is when you think about this, what are we also saying? That the author of the Quran is smarter than you are. Meaning Allah Ta'ala, all of this, all of us know this. Okay? I mean, I don't have to try to convince you that the author of the Quran is smarter than you. But the point I'd like you to consider is that if the author of the Quran is smarter than you are, then you are free to push the Quran as hard as you can. You are free to challenge the Quran as hard as you can. And it will not break. Okay? Because what's built into uh, a consequence of the way we've been doing our learning in our community is that most learning is really dumbed down. And there's this built-in fear that uh, for a lot of people that, okay, you can't ask these questions because, you know, those are, those are very, very, uh, uh, that's going to take you into very difficult terrain. Or don't get a major in philosophy because you're going to learn things and you're going to lose faith. You're going to lose your faith faster in science than you will in philosophy. We'll talk about that too as well. But the point here is when you think of the author of the text being smarter than you, then you are being invited to use your full brain power. Okay? And so this is a point that I'll make with, with my students uh, that, all right, when I give them a Quran assignment is, okay, raise any and every question you can think of, okay? uh, especially if it's a question that is potentially shaking your faith. How do we have free will and predestination? How do we, uh, can uh, God be good and that we have all this evil in the world? Whatever the case may be. And, and so the more you feel comfortable in using your full brain power, the more you will, as a consequence, have trust in the text. The less you will feel comfortable in using your full brain power, there's going to be a part of you in the back of your mind that is still going to keep your foot out of the picture. And so I'm saying you use your full brain power as a way to keep your Iman strong. And more often than not, you will find your own answers to your questions. But sometimes you have to be ready to, to, to accept the answer to your question. So this is the definition of the word Quran. Now other terminology. So, so basic terminology, the Quran comes with its own terminology. 
And you already know all these terms, but this is to get into some basic definition. You know, the word aya translates as sign. And you know, the word sura translates, oh, wait, do you know how the word sura translates? Okay, sura, sura comes from the word sur, which is, if you look at an old city, like you go to Jerusalem even today, there's a wall around the city. And that's called sur. A sura is essentially a city in this context of guidance. So a city of guidance, a city of knowledge. So think of a surah as its own complete discourse. So I'll say a city of guidance. Okay. Now, when we're speaking of each verse of the Quran as an ayah, how do we know what makes an ayah? Uh, it's not, it doesn't line up with sentences. As you know, there are some ayahs that are just a couple of letters, hamim, alif, lamim, you know, kaf, haya, ayin, sod, right? Sometimes that's an ayah. Sometimes an ayah will even break in the middle of a sentence. And then you will read a sentence, you'll read an ayah, and it's half a sentence, and then the other half is, is the next ayah. How do we determine what is a surah? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Both of these are what we call tawqifi. Another important concept to have. Tawqifi literally means it's frozen. But what is the idea of Tawqifi? That this is what is handed down to us. What makes an ayah an ayah is what is reported that the Prophet himself, peace be upon him, paused at. That the Prophet, peace be upon him, at the beginning of Al-Baqarah, he recites Alif Lam Mim, pause. We're taught that's the end of an ayah, full stop. And then then he continues into the next ayah. Yet the very next surah, surah Ali Imran, alif lamim is just part of an ayah. And this you can look up uh, on your own. So what is it that makes something a sign? What is something that makes an ayah? What is it that makes something a surah? It's basically what the Prophet, peace be upon him, has done and dictated. There is no identifiable logic behind what makes an ayah an ayah, what makes something else not an ayah. It is handed down. And so thus, a major part of our tradition is twofold. One, it's essentially mimicking the prophet, peace be upon him. And all of you already know this. This is, uh, I'm giving you ways to, to articulate it. But the other part is the lived tradition. How do you learn most of your dean? You do not learn most of your dean from books. You learn most of your dean from practice. So how do you learn how to pray? Uh, We don't have a central manual on how to pray. Right? We'll say, okay, the Quran does not tell you how to pray. And some people say, well, it's in the Hadith. Not really. Uh, you'll have like 30 hadith that'll tell you how to pray. You might have one hadith that says, here's all the steps of the prophet's wudu, but there isn't one one hadith that says, here's how the prophet prays. It's assembled from all the hadith, sure. But how did you actually learn how to pray? You may have started with a book, you may have started with a video, you may have started with the internet, but how did you really learn how to pray? From someone else. And then how did that person learn how to pray from someone else? 
And how did that person learn how to pray from someone else? That if I if I asked each and every one of you, how'd you learn how to pray? You might say Sunday school, you might say your parents, whatever the case may be. But then they learn from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone, going all the way back to the prophet, peace be upon him. Now think about this. This is one of the open miracles of Islam. Like we'd like to say one of the open miracles of Islam is the Quran is preserved. Sure. Or that the Quran talks about the embryo. Yeah, sure. Okay. A bigger miracle is that we don't have a central manual on how to pray. Yet, if you go to someone in Malaysia, if you go to someone in Africa, if you go to someone in Chicago, everybody prays the same way. You know, even the, 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 the various details, like do I do my fingers like this or put my finger like that? Those also get traced back to the prophet, peace be upon him. So then you go on Hajj and you see everybody prays the same way even though there is no central manual. It's literally handed down one by one, person to person, over the course of 1,400 years. Nobody else has anything close to this in their tradition. The closest thing would be, would be mass in the Catholic Church, and that's because you have a central authority that is dictating, here's how you do it. But even that has gone through major changes, especially in the last 40 years. And so consider that as one of the open miracles illustrating the practice of mimicking the prophet. Because the prophet, peace be upon him, what does he say? Pray as you see me pray. And that's how we all learn how to pray. And then there's this continuous living tradition that is what, that is what keeps Islam. And that is how you learn things like the Sunnah. Okay, so that's the first part. The second part to consider when we speak about ayahs is that this is referring not to only to verses in the Quran, it's also referring to all the phenomena around us and within us. Phenomena. And so, as you know, the word that Allah uses for the wind is ayah. The word that Allah uses for clouds is ayah. The word that Allah uses for, for the operations of your own physiology is ayah. And this is also the word that Allah uses for each verse of the Quran. And this is giving us a hint of how the Quran itself operates. So now let's focus on um, how does the Quran work. The easiest way to understand this is to think of all scriptures as something akin to a sci-fi novel or a sci-fi movie, sci-fi fantasy. Okay. So if we're talking about Harry Potter, Harry Potter is saying, here's how the world works. You have the world of muggles, which go through all their usual life. They have no idea what's going on. But then in the unseen realm, you have magic and you have these forces of good and evil with these cataclysmic battles taking place. Okay. Or if you speak of how does Star Wars say that the reality operates, right? You have this force that binds us and penetrates us and all that. Okay. Or think of anything else, whether you're talking about Dune or any other sci-fi fantasy story. They're telling you, here's how reality actually operates. Okay. And that's how scripture operates. Scripture is saying, here's how reality operates. So, for example, how does Christianity operate? Christianity says we are in this world 
because of the sin of someone else. And we are seeking redemption from that sin. And then God sent a first set of generations of people who ultimately failed. So this is from Adam to Noah. Okay? And then God retries and then sets uh, a new generation of people. And then finally, God himself gives redemption to the people by sacrificing his own son. And so you can find your redemption and thus by, by embracing what God has given you. Okay? And then you can have eternal life. Right? And then how is Judaism saying that, that reality operates? That we're in this perpetual state of exile from God. First, because of the original act of the original people. And then this perpetual state of exile, which is the result of our own misbehavior. And then when we turn back to God, then we start getting closer. But otherwise, we keep remaining in exile. Now, what is our tradition saying? Our tradition is saying that we are in this world with a job to be the khalifas of Allah in this world. And then Allah is going to hold us to account on the day of judgment for how do we do this? How do we do our jobs? So we're saying this is how reality operates according to the Quran. The common word we use is test. But nobody ever talks about how to pass the test. Well, you're going through a test right now. You know, like they don't tell us how to pass the test. So we're going to define that a little bit later when we get to it, inshallah. But that's sort of how we're saying the Quran is saying that reality operates. But the bigger point I want you to consider is that how does the Quran speak in terms of its operation? Its focus is more on your thinking. Like we'll often say, okay, the Quran is a rule book. It tells you it's a guidebook. It tells you what you're supposed to do, not supposed to do. But out of 6,000 some ayahs, uh, not even 500 are rules. Meaning where Allah says, do this or don't do this. That's less than 10%. Closer to 5% is actual instructions. We're saying 95% of the Quran is not instructions. And it has for each and every one of you uh, is to ask yourself, when we start through the story of the prophet, peace be upon him, easy test, what's the first uh, command he receives? Okay, all of you know the answer to this, iqra, right? Read. But what about when we start with the Quran, the way it's laid out, starting from Al-Fatiha, then getting into Al-Baqarah, then Ali Imran, what's the first command? And uh, some of you are probably going, thinking to your head, trying to go through the whole Quran to figure out what the first command is. But the point is that I'm very confident that none of you know the answer to this question. Anybody want to prove me wrong? You can unmute your microphone. I'm saying when you open the Quran from page one, what is the first instruction Allah gives us? Anyone want to try? A lot of frozen faces. You look like my undergrads. Okay, so I'm not going to answer that question right now. We will get to it in a couple of weeks, inshallah. But think about what I've asked you. I could have asked you, what is the fifth instruction? Or the fourth, or the third, or the second. But nobody can ever tell me even the first instruction. 
And this is a question that I've asked, no exaggeration, to over 2,000 people, 2,000 Muslims over the years. And in total, maybe five have been able to answer it. And that is also giving you a hint of the condition of our community, which it sounds like a very simple question, doesn't it? A very simple, basic question. What's the first thing Allah tells us to do when we open up the book? And I'll give you a hint. The answer is not in Al-Fatiha. Okay, so, so we're saying it's focusing on your thinking more than on commands. Commands include prohibitions. And so part of the process then where we're saying of transformation is to get your thinking straight. So very often you'll know in many, many books of hadith, the very first hadith that's being quoted, our actions are judged by intentions in the malama'ad of niyats, right? Actions are judged by intentions. And you where are your intentions? Your intentions are in your thinking. And so much of the Quran's focus on getting your thinking straight. And then the commands are there to reinforce your focus. Okay. Why do we have to do the commands? Because Allah Ta'ala said so. But what is the benefit of the commands? If my focus is on the fact that I have to keep making my prayers every couple of hours, okay, then that's going to affect my thinking because my prayers will be on my mind. Or if I'm fasting, all of us know the feeling that you're always on guard when you're fasting. Okay, that is keeping your thinking on focus. Okay. And much of the Quran is focused on your thinking. And, and so that will be the bulk of a lot of what we will be looking at, how to adjust our thinking. Okay, a few more points. The first surah, Al-Fatiha. We commonly translate it as the opening. If we want to be technical, it's the opener. So in Arabic, this is ismfa'il. This is active participle, not opening like a window, opener, like a key or a flashlight. That the entirety of the Quran is understood through the flashlight of Surah Al-Fatiha. The entirety of the entire Islamic tradition is understood through the flashlight of Surah Al-Fatiha. So to help make sense of this, let's talk about the Islamic tradition. So the Islamic sciences, if you were to sum up all the major Islamic sciences, you can put them into three categories. Two, three. The first would be what we would call the reference material. The second would be what we'd call the practice or the practicable uh, sciences. And then the third would be abstract sciences. So the reference material is Arabic language, Quran, and the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet includes the Sunnah and the and the Hadith. Those are two overlapping but separate things, and we'll talk about those things when we when we get to it. Yeah. I don't know why this is taking so long to upgrade. Okay, so. So the reference material is Arabic, the Quran, and the Prophet. And then the practicable sciences are Islamic law, purification, which is tazkiyah, and then character and manners, which is essentially adab and akhlaq. 
effective. So the Islamic practice of the practicable sciences would be Islamic law. So Sharia, Islamic law, fiqh, Islamic law is focused on action. So if you think of what you would find in a book of fiqh, it's all action. Tazkiyah, which is purification, is focused on the condition of your heart. And adab is your conduct, your character, manners. So sometimes you use the word adab, sometimes you use the word akhlaq. So these are the practicable Islamic sciences, meaning these are things that you do, if, even if all you're doing is thinking. And then abstract sciences will include history, theology, and philosophy. So these are all in the realm of the imagination. So for example, the Sira, the biography of the prophet, peace be upon him, would be a book of history. It's not telling you anything to do. It's not even teaching you any lessons. You might construct a lesson from it, but it's not giving you anything to, to, to do with your life. And theology, there's one element of theology, which is called a qida, which we'll get to, but most of theology is essentially trying to figure out philosophically how does this whole relationship with Allah work? This thing that we call Islam, how does it all fit together? Yeah. Or it'll be questions that are coming from outside, like evolution, how do you reconcile evolution and deed, things like that. Yeah. And then philosophy would be essentially the same thing, but not necessarily connected to scripture. So how does an ideal city operate? So these are the Islamic sciences. Now, what we're saying here is that all of these Islamic sciences trace themselves back to the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon them. So, which I think uh, makes sense for everybody. But what else am I saying? I'm saying the better I know the content of the Quran, the better I know the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the better I know the essence of all the Islamic sciences. And then if we take this a step further into its roots, we're saying that the, the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, trace themselves back to Al-Fatiha. So the better the more thoroughly I know Al-Fatiha, the more I know the essence of the rest of the Quran and all of the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then the more thoroughly I know the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon them, then the more I know the essence of the Islamic sciences. But now it starts to get fun. The more thoroughly I know Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, so what we call the Basmalah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the more thoroughly I know that, the more I know the essence of Al-Fatiha. And then the more thoroughly I know Al-Fatiha, the more I know the essence of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, and so on. 
them. And then there's a teaching to attribute it to Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, that all of that gets traced back to the Ba. The Ba of Bismillah, the Be of Bismillah. Okay. That the more thoroughly I know this Ba, the more I know the essence of Bismillah Rahman Rahim. And what is a translation? It is in or with. So if you if you just think of any translation of Bismillah Rahman Rahim, it'll be in the name of Allah, with the name of Allah. And so what is the essence of this? It is connection. So we're saying one of the essences of essences of all of Islam is connection. So examples, when you are praying, the word salah itself means connection. And with whom are you seeking connection? Obviously, you're seeking connection with Allah. And then how do we pray the way we pray? That's coming from the Prophet, peace be upon him. How do you know the prayer time? You're looking at where the sun is in the sky. You're connecting to nature. Or you're looking at how long your shadow is, depending upon the prayer. Uh, the ideal prayer is prayer done in congregation. So you're connecting with others. And then also when you're lifting your hands in dua, you're speaking from your own heart to Allah. You're connecting to yourself. So Allah, the Prophet, peace be upon him, nature, the community, and yourself. The whole essence of salah is connection. Or if you think of all of the commands and all the prohibitions, all of the commands are designed to increase the strength of our relationship with Allah or with those whom Allah is telling us to have a connection with, like the Prophet, peace be upon him, like family, like our neighbors, so so forth and so on. And then if you look at the prohibitions, the sins, any sin you can think of is straining or breaking a connection. If you keep, if you share a secret with me and then I start telling everyone, I'm straining my relationship with you, right? If I'm lying to you, I'm straining my relationship with you. If I commit murder, obviously you're breaking a relationship. And so we're saying that the essence, one of the essences of all the essences of our whole tradition is connection. Uh, someone just unmuted. Someone have a question? No. Okay. By all means, feel free to interrupt at any point with questions. Um, sounds like someone's breathing. Okay. So... That is your fundamental lesson for today, is that the dean is all about connections. So an exercise, a voluntary exercise that you can do as homework. Let's see if I can write it down here. Is identify your 25 strongest relationships. So just make a list of those strongest relationships that you have and then evaluate it. How do you evaluate it? <clears throat> who is not in that list who should be? Who is lower 
in that list than they should be, who is higher than they should be. And so we're saying essentially one of the whole foundations of Islam is in your relationships. And so if you were to dedicate yourself to improving, strengthening all of your relationships appropriately, then you will be accomplishing almost all of Islam. And so having said that, any questions about anything? Are you, when we're talking about relationships, you want us to, uh, are we looking at relationships with other Muslims or in general? All of your relationships. So they could be relationships with other Muslims. They could be relationships not necessarily with human beings. And so make a list of those. And part of the process of evaluating, which can help, is put them in ranking. Like here's level one, here's level two, here's level three, so forth and so on. Okay. And then that can give you a sense of what a person needs to reform. I have a question. Outside yes. of the realm of familial relationships and uh, object, ob, Islamic object relationships, what meaningful relationships do you think there are? Uh, there's your neighbor. Well, that's so, Okay. Well, I mean, that's outside of family. But um, yeah. Well, I mean, outside uh, of, um, I guess, um, Non, non-person related. Does it, so like what objective relationships otherwise do you think there are? So I think uh, your relationship with your phone as a tool of communication um, is definitely a thing in our era, right? Um, your pet, if you have a pet, your relationship with the entire community, whether we're speaking of the Muslim community, whether it's speaking of your, your local area, those are also relationships. Okay. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Does work count as relationship? If in your mind and heart it is, then yeah, absolutely. So you can leave work even after work? Yeah. I mean, my work is, is pretty much 24-7. I literally have a meeting right after this. And so... So I think it can absolutely count. I'd say for work, define as precisely as you can what it is. So, so in my case, it wouldn't necessarily be Loyola. Loyola is the employer, but it could be the body of students. You know. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Does it, does it have to be bi-directional? Like if you identify closely with the people you follow online? I think that's a fantastic example that's unidirectional. So no, it does not have to be bidirectional. And that would be a, a thing to evaluate, right? Some relationships uh, are 50-50. Most relationships are not 50-50. You know? And the more, the wider the relationship is, like with your spouse, your sibling, your child, your parent, it uh, the numbers will will vary, and and so all the different ways you can think to evaluate evaluate, and I'm more than happy to also get into discussions on those with you. Any other questions?
Okay. Uh, uh, you all uh, have my contact info if you have more questions, thoughts, reflections. And then if you want, you're welcome to bring in other people in the class. I would caution against, against just posting the Zoom like in a group chat. Please don't do that because then uh, I have a lot of people who don't like me who, who try to troll or destroy things. But uh, aside from that, uh, we will continue, inshallah, next time, 11 o'clock. These lectures are being recorded, audio recordings. I mean, I mean I'll be posting the audio recordings uh, on my SoundCloud. And, and then I'll also post all of the, the notes as well in a Google Doc that you all have access to, inshallah. All right, we will stop here then. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, you O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk, and we turn to you. All right, may Allah bless you all, inshallah, and we'll see you soon. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi. Hola, ¿cómo